from Ranch TV Studios. This is Beef with Millennials, hosted by Allie, Julia, and Corey. We are here to give you the facts on beef production and how we, as millennials, can make an impact on the future of the beef industry. So today, Allie and I are here with a pretty incredible guest. Allie, why don't you give us a little bit of background information on who we're going to be talking to today? Joining us today is Dr. D. Ellis, who is a veterinarian at the Institute for Infectious Animal Diseases. He serves as a livestock and animal health consulting resource for both the Institute and Texas A&M AgriLife Research. With his expertise in zoonotic diseases and experience as executive director and state veterinarian for Texas Animal Health Commission, we hope he can give us some insight on animal health and planning for disaster response. Again, thanks for joining us, Dr. D. Ellis, and welcome to the Beef with Millennials podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. All right. Well, Dr. Deal, so where did you grow up, and can you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Well, sure. I was born and raised in Comanche, Texas, which is out west of Fort Worth, near Brownwood, south of Abilene, that area. And um, I lived there in my formative years, and so I lived in a small town, and then for some reason my family moved to Dallas when I went to high school. So I actually went to high school in Richardson. And so I have a small town background and then a large town high school experience, which actually was probably beneficial. It balanced me out a little bit and I can appreciate both sides, the urban and the rural perspectives Mm -hmm. on things. All right, awesome. Uh, Where did you study at and what's your background in agriculture? Well, I think starting out, my family had a dairy when I was young and we had horses and cattle and milk cows and I remember how much I like to drink raw milk, but also how much trouble it was to go milk that cow two or three times a day. So it probably wasn't worth it in the end, but we had a ton of horses as well. And, you know, there's a lot of work with that. And so I I developed a love of agriculture at an early age. We had wheat, we grew wheat and had cattle and horses, as I mentioned, and 4-H projects. And so that's where I got my basis for my interest in agriculture growing up. I'm an animal science major originally, and I went to Texas State University for that. Um, It was called Southwest Texas back then, and so I got an undergrad in animal science, and I came over to Texas A&M and uh, completed my veterinary degree there. Um, Later on on in life, when I was uh, um, involved in managing a state agency, I went back to school and got a master's in public administration again at Texas State in San Marcos, and so... Um, I have two degrees from San Marcos and two from A&M because when you go through vet school, if you don't already have a degree, you get an undergrad in veterinary science after your second year, at least you did then. So I have two degrees from each school. Okay. Um, Well, I know you were state veterinarian for Texas Animal Health Commission, but what other industry experience do you have besides your background, like when you grew up and everything? Well, I think probably the most important thing to understand about Um, successful business or successful government is that at the end of the day if you're in agriculture you're trying to make a a safe and wholesome and healthy food supply but the folks that raise the animals have to make a living at that as well and so when I started with the Texas Animal Health Commission as a field veterinarian actually practiced first I was in a mixed practice in Gonzales for about two years right out of school and then I went to work for the Animal Health Commission temporarily while I built a clinic and I just never did. But the, the job of the Animal Health Commission, uh, of which the state veterinarian is the head of that agency, is to support uh, diseases that either have economic impact on, the, on livestock industries or public health or animal health or both. And so um, the 
industry perspective that I gained over time was one serving the industry and helping um, eradicate diseases that cost them money and made people and animals sick. And then at the end of the day, as state veterinarian, you're also the executive director of the agency. So I was very heavily involved with budget and with legislation to support initiatives um, of the agency. And so how do you pass a bill? Well, you have to have the support of your stakeholders. In other words, the head of a state agency just doesn't go talk elected officials into passing legislation. Uh, they're very reluctant to ever pass legislation unless there's a groundswell of support to do that. So a state veterinarian is an unusual situation in that I was regulating industry. In other words, this is the agency that has the Coggins test for horses or the EIA test requirements, health certificates for entry into the state, different qualifications or certifications that animals and animal owners have to have to move animals safely, especially if they go across state lines. And so I was, I was in a regulatory position, but I was also at the same time uh, dependent upon the industries that were regulated to get um, needed legislation passed. Um, and so you went, so you learned very quickly to use working groups. We used a lot of working groups where we would say, hey, we've got this problem. Um, what do you guys think about solutions? And, and so the way state government works is that you have rules or regulations that are based on laws. And so if an agency wants to pass a law, uh, a rule, they have to have a law giving them the authority to do that. And so back to the industry, so in, inevitably the only way either rules, regulations, or laws could be enacted that supported what the agency needed to do was with the goodwill of the industries that were involved. And so the Animal Health Commission is made up of 13 commissioners that are appointed by the governor, and so they're industry people. They're, other than the three public uh, officials, the other 10 are um, the cattle industry, the dairy, the beef, the feedlot, the swine, the sheep and goat, the horses, the cell barn owner, the feedlot owners, dairy, etc. And so my bosses were industry, so I actually I was bossed by industry and regulated them at the same time. And then we worked together. If it was a good idea, um, we would work together to go to elected officials, whether it was a budget issue or a needed regulation that needed a statutory support to make it happen we would go together and then they would go by themselves as well and tell the elected officials this guy yeah he's a government guy but he's a good guy because inherently um, elected officials um, state reps and senators mainly who I'm talking about here have a, a general um, not mistrust but they kind of look at you when you come to them they figure you're wanting money or something and so they always want to take care of their constituents and so how could I get necessary tools to run the agency with the trust of my industry stakeholders. And so industry at that level are the organizations, Texas Farm Bureau, Texas Southwestern Cattle Raisers, Independent Cattlemen, Texas Poultry Federation, uh, organizations like that, Texas um, uh, Dairy Association of Dairymen. And so those, in my day-to-day -day job as state veterinarian, I work side-by-side -side with the industries every day, and you learn to appreciate their perspective, which is they're business people. They're also uh, stewards of the land and of the animals. And, um, you know, the One Health concept now has really come into play where you have animal health, public health, and environmental health. 
that truly is a changing paradigm for us all in the ag industry to understand the inter interdependence of those three things. So that's my relationship with industry in that they helped me and I helped them. And you develop a trust and you're honest and you're efficient and you do what you say you're going to do and you'll be well accepted. You make some great points and I know that's kind of what we want to get across in our podcast is that most beef producers are stewards of the land and they want to be sure that they do the right things possible to make sure that their cattle are raised right and that everything is done to the best of their ability. Um, so what led you to become a veterinarian for the Institute of Infectious Diseases? Well, I was with the Animal Health Commission for over 30 years and so truthfully just looking for a change. Um, you know, the legislative cycle in Texas is good and bad. The good is that it's every two years. So if you get a good budget and good rules and regulations supported by legislation, then you don't have to go back until the year after next. The bad is that if you know you need something changed, sometimes you have to wait an extra year to get it done. And so I think just the the um, the stress of um, legislative initiatives. It's very difficult to uh, politics. Um, is stressful during the session. The Texas session is just uh, from January to May every other year in the odd year and it's just crammed full of activities and you know the Animal Health Commission I loved it. It was my career. I would I don't regret it but there are a lot of very difficult unsolvable problems we can talk about here in a minute if you'd like and so I think I was just ready for a change. So why did I go to IAD? Well I had friends there and I think you know, for the folks listening, networking, you're going to get jobs by networking more than any other thing. Um, don't burn bridges, make friends, make connections, um, and get a good reputation and good things will follow you. So I had, bottom line, I was an Aggie and I had friends that I had. I'd worked with them as state vet on a number of initiatives. I respected the institute and it just made sense and it was uh, something I decided to do. So. That's how how I ended up at the Institute here at Texas A&M, mm -hmm. from Austin. Quite a change, Austin College Station. Definitely. Both have bad traffic, by the way. <laughs> I believe that. But what you the point you make about like networking, it's really true. And over the last month, I personally have realized, because I've been applying for jobs, it, what you say is true, don't burn any bridges and always kind of be true to yourself in that way. Um, uh, so um, could you tell us a little bit more about the Institute for Infectious sure. Animal Diseases and so, their research? So the Institute's part of the AgriLife Research um, Department and um, since it's been there since 2004 and it's a Homeland Security Emeritus Center of Excellence. And so what does that mean is that we do research on a variety of topics, uh, agri agricultural um, capacity building, educational, um, not all are specifically animal disease even though that's the name of the institute. Um, we, we do research to help defend the nation with, from high consequence foreign animal and zoonotic diseases so things like foot and mouth disease and that are a global threat to the United States industry. We work with industries, uh, governments, international partners. Um, we do training as well as educational um, outreach. Uh, capacity building. We have projects in Africa uh, right now um, and technology. We have a number of technology products and solutions for agriculture. Um, and so it's more uh, rather than think of it as a bunch of scientists sitting around in laboratories, it's more of a, a think tank where we take our cumulative expertise at the Institute and then we partner that with Texas A&M system folks from AgriLife 
um, extension research, the College of Veterinary Medicine, um, uh, Animal Science Department, different places, TEKS, technology folks at A&M, uh, and we work together to uh, provide a, a, a package of competent, capable resources that can handle net problems and it's a grant driven mainly organization and so that takes partners and you get back to the networking and stakeholders it's true for friends for business partners and for getting grants as well and so Texas A&M has a great reputation and I add within that then we're able to work with all these partners at the national level the industry level and uh, at the international level as well um, and putting together uh, solutions for folks so um, we are right now you know I'll talk about it in a minute but the uh, um, the A&M the, uh, system and IAD was lucky enough to be announced as a liaison a li a host for the the North American uh, World Health Organization the OIE as a collaborating center for animal health it's 181 countries and they just decided to put an office there with the Institute we're over at the Syntec building and so it's a it's an opportunity to continue to network with global partners on animal health solutions and we're really excited about that well by reopening trade with Brazil, I know whenever I was interning at Texas and Southwestern Cattle Raiser Association back in 2014, that was a big issue of concern with foot and mouth disease. So since you brought that up earlier, can you explain that trade issue and how it could affect cattle producers? Um, I'll try trade, expl explaining trade issues is somewhat complex and subjective. So I'll give you my take on what I saw happening with Brazil. And um, without talking specifically about um, any one industry, species, or country, let me just throw out some concepts about trade in general. You know, sometimes, uh, and, the, and the focus of our USDA government and our OIE partners, who help set the standards, um, clear, understandable, science-based standards for trade of animals and animal health products, based on uh, you know tangible explainable science-based issues is that the truth is trade isn't always that um, I've been involved in my career I, I was involved with an animal export issue with Mexico and when we sat down to talk about cattle they were really mad about potatoes and so what happens sometimes unless you have treaties and and agreements in place is countries can make a decision and say it's for this reason and it's really for that. And so that's the challenge when you start negotiating um, trade. And so for Brazil, the issue has been for a number of years that they've had foot and mouth disease. And foot and mouth disease is a very contagious virus. It doesn't really kill animals, mm -hmm. but it kills your markets. It kills your exportability and your trade opportunities. Um, and so the United States government through USDA, based upon the international standards, uh, has been off and on pretty much full-time negotiating um, entry rules and requirements for products and animals with countries such as Brazil. And so for foot and mouth disease, the, there's different levels of statuses in other words you're just infected and you got it and it's out of control or you're infected but you're vaccinating 
and you probably kind of got it under control or you're still vaccinating but you think you've got it controlled and then you're free again. So countries that get diseases like that go through various stages of status evaluation and acceptance. And so the problems with Brazil trading with the United States, and keep in mind that the underlying uh, unspoken word is in trade is that regardless of whether it's potatoes or anything else, if you open up your import markets, if you import a commodity from another country, you're basically creating um, a competition for your own folks that are raising those potatoes, right? Or cattle, whatever it is. And so sometimes governments and countries can really blame a disease or a pest as a reason not to allow trade when the truth is they're not wanting to put their producers at a disadvantage. Maybe it costs more to raise that commodity in your country than overseas and they know if they bring in a cheaper thing the consumer will switch to a foreign commodity. So sometimes trade is really impacted not by science, not by standards per se, but for competition reasons. And that's why the OIE was created to create transparent science-based animal health regulations and USDA really tries hard. In Brazil's case, yes, they had foot and mouth. We don't have that in the United States. Obviously, our industries were very concerned about risk. In this case, they weren't willing to take any risk because it would be such a devastating impact. Um, and, and beyond that is the, just the, the um, fact that in the last couple of years, you know, Brazil kind of got a bad uh, reputation. They had some problems with their inspection processes at their slaughter plants in different places. And so for a number of years now, <clears throat> the United States had not um, traded with Brazil on cattle, uh, live cattle or cattle, fresh kill cattle because of disease concerns, but always keep in mind there are other reasons that complicated that. So just recently, I think it, uh, the trade avenues are beginning to open up between these two countries. And the problem is if we didn't allow their fresh killed beef in, as they wanted a few years back, as you mentioned in 14, um, then they could do something to us just as bad. And that's where, um, you know, the cattle guys, let's just say, could get their way and the swine folks could get hurt. And so the, the federal government's role is to try and balance that and try and negotiate the best agreement for everyone. And so the complexity of trade with Brazil is just indicative of, yes, there was a serious disease issue, there were trust issues, there were competition issues, and when you put all those together, it's, it just takes a long time to work it out. And that's kind of what's going on there. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, obviously you have a very fantastic resume in general, but could you tell us a little bit more about uh, the research you're involved with and everything with um, Institute for Infectious Animal Diseases? Sure. So um, we're a pretty diverse organization. There's a number of veterinarians that work there and other scientists, and we have all kinds of research partnerships with other folks here, both at A&M, um, across the state with other academic institutions uh, and federal government and state governments. And so what am I personally doing? One of the things that I brought to the table here at Texas A&M was a strong background in cattle fever tick um, industry experience. Um, cattle fever tick is um, a tick that spreads a disease called babesiosis, which is in Mexico. The ticks in Mexico um, the tick is not supposed to be in the United States. We eradicated it. And this goes back to the old cattle drive days. In the old days, in the late 1800s, when Texas cattle were driven up north, they had these ticks on them, and they dropped off and made babies, and the babies carried the disease, and then they bought, they bit an animal from Oklahoma or Kansas, and it 
it made them sick. If an animal is exposed as a calf, they have some um, resistance and it doesn't really affect them too bad, but if they get bitten as an adult, it kills them most of the time. So this devastating disease that was really un un um, was not understood at all back in the late 1800s created a number of opportunities for research capabilities, including here at Texas A&M. They were very heavily involved in, in understanding, one, that these ticks caused a disease and how did they cause it they had a pro, they had a, a, a babesia organism inside them that was a separate entity so it was a partnership between the tick and the babesia that started the animal health commission the agency i ended up being in charge of was actually originally formed to fight the cattle fever tick and it was eradicated from the united states in the 1940s uh, but has always posed a reintroduction problem because texas touches mexico so stray animals wild animals come across. So what am I doing right now? I'm helping Texas A&M understand the issues and work with state governments and foreign countries on cattle fever tick research possibilities, vaccines against the tick, treatments against the tick, not only on cattle but on wildlife. Um, we have a, a partnership with uh, Texas A&M, Texas A&M Kingsville right now on some studies down there. There's a wild, an, uh, an Asian antelope called a nilgai that can transmit these ticks. Uh, White-tailed deer transmit the ticks. And so I'm working with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, their agricultural research services on some vaccine developments and also with wildlife folks trying to understand ways that we can mitigate the risk of not cattle, but wildlife moving these ticks where they were never a problem before. Um, we have a technology project that's taken up a lot of my time. It's called AgConnect. It was a, it was the institute uh, created this um, software tool. It's a suite of tools that basically sets up a way for uh, sharing of data. In this case, between the commercial swine industry and state and federal animal health officials, so that uh, the normal day-to-day -day business management data that a swine producer would uh, maybe collect, let's say, um, how many pigs are in the barn, um, what's the temperature, what's the water, what's their food, is their lagoon full or not, uh, how many are sick, what are they sick with, all these kinds of things that a commercial partner um, just captures. They're they're, the, 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 the concept is they'll use a mobile application that we developed here at Texas A&M and now in partnership with the swine industry to roll it out to a scalable level. Um, they're going to, the concept is the swine industry wants to have all their producers capturing this data and put it in a system so it's available. So if they get a catastrophic disease in the United States, they can quickly share that information with the state veterinarian or the federal government and they will allow them to move their animals because pigs, like chickens, are in confinement in small places where that if they grow, get too big, they have to move. And the normal thing that happens when you have a disease outbreak, like foot and mouth, be, uh, or in this case, say, classical swine fever, the old hog cholera, the normal, um, the normal thing for a state veterinarian to do is stop all movements till they figure it out and go, no one goes anywhere till I figure this out. Well, the swine industry is proactive in that they know they need to move quickly within just a few days. And so what they've set up using our technology suite and in partnership and um, we're putting in dollars and they're putting in dollars to pilot this new concept for business continuity is the data, their business data will be there and if they need to quickly share that with state animal health officials, they can so that they'll be allowed to move. Because inherently, usually private industry doesn't want to give government 
information. They just try and keep it separate. So that is an exciting opportunity. Part of that is also an electronic health certificate called mo uh, mobile uh, CVI, MCVI. And so anytime you take animals across the state line, livestock for sure, and even sometimes companion animals, you need a health certificate. If you want to get on an airplane, you need a health certificate. And so we have an electronic health certificate that's a component of this Ag Connect, and it's also part of the data that can be used. So I'm very um, uh, much involved in a technology solution that's actually going to help an industry stay in business. And if it works for the swine guys, then, well, we'll probably look and talk to the cattle folks and the poultry folks next. So, well, I'm very excited about that opportunity. Definitely. There was a recent case of BSE in the state of Alabama. What role does the Institute play in an out outbreak such as that or any sort of disaster planning that they may have to deal with? Well, let me explain a little bit about BSC in general. So there's two kinds of BSC, and one's very important and the other is just, you find it and when you realize that's what it is, it's not that big of a deal, but it still raises concern. So you have the atypical and the classical. And so the classical is the old uh, BSC that they had in the United Kingdom that killed people. It was a food chain issue. It came to be that it changed the rules. For example, um, you can no longer feed ruminant protein back to ruminants as an example of a feed rule that was changed, I think, in 1997. <clears throat> it also changed the slaughter process in that what they call high risk or specified materials like spinal cords and brains and things that might have the prion that is BSE are no longer put in the food chain, so they're actually taken out so that if a cow or bull got into the food chain, um, that part of its body was not there, so it would mitigate the risk. And so what we've had, we had the first case in the United States in late 2003, I believe, up in Washington State, actually came out of Canada in a dairy cow. That was the real deal, and that's what led to a huge surveillance system globally, but also in the United States. We tested millions of animals and have a strong surveillance system in place. Since that time, I think there's been four more cases and they're all the other kind of BSE, not the, not the classical kind that, that worries you so much. It's called atypical and it's, it's more likely thought to just be a spontaneous occurrence that sometimes happens in older cows and I think the case, last case is in Alabama and I think it was in an older animal. Um, and uh, Texas had a case like this back in, I think, 05. And Alabama's had a couple, and then there's another state that has had this. So what these do when we find these atypical cases like they found in Alabama, that this is an indication that the surveillance system is working. And when they determine um, scientifically that it's not the kind that causes the, the human concern, the variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob syndrome, that's what we worried about is, is the public health concern then um, it just kind of gets closed out as a, as a, okay, our system's still working, but this wasn't the real deal. So uh, the IAD is not specifically working on um, BSE research right now, um, but globally and worldwide, the United States has uh, strong surveillance systems in place to look for it, and um, we've been free of it for many years. And in fact, this, the, I think the BSE was one of the reasons the Brazilians didn't want to take our product even though we only had one case and we looked at millions of animals, I think it took them 13 years to finally admit it. Again, you wonder, well, were they really worried about BSE or did they just not want the United States flooding good quality beef into Brazil and competing with theirs? So same kind of issue. So the Alabama situation was not, in the end, um, the type of BSE that we worried about, but it did show that our surveillance system works. That's great.
Okay, well, last question that we have for you today is, like, how would you compare the U.S. to other countries in terms of animal health? Well, obviously, you know, uh, we're, in my opinion, at the top of the food chain. We have eradicated most of the diseases of uh, concern, transboundary diseases, and what would be some examples of that? We've either eradicated them or we never had them in recent memory. So Europe is struggling with uh, African swine fever right now and hogs in Eastern Europe. Foot and mouth disease is a huge problem. The tick-borne diseases in Africa are probably the biggest concern they have. Um, we, so we, we struggle with, because we're so good at eradicating diseases, then what, do we, what is our focus here? It's on surveillance systems and, and rapid response. And so there's always the opportunities with the way animals and people travel these days to inadvertently um, bring in a virus um, and reinfect the United States uh, through meat or just dirt or manure on your boots or different things. And so the United States, um, the last significant disease outbreak that it encountered was the avian influenza outbreak in um, uh, 2015 16 they had a couple of years in a row where they had it and so so you have two issues is it a disease that affects the economic viability of the industry or does it make animals sick and or does it make humans sick most of the diseases that we eradicated over the years tuberculosis brucellosis I spent most of my career fighting cattle brucellosis in Texas and TB are programmatic concerns because they also make humans sick um, and then you have some just some economic diseases. So where are our threats? Well, um, uh, international travel, the Caribbean, uh, you know, you, we had a screw arm outbreak in Florida last year that probably came in from f uh, flies either from Cuba or Haiti or some other third world country. Um, and so we're basically focusing on United States now, more, not on eradicating, eradicating existing diseases, but on maintaining a good surveillance system and if we find something of concern, quickly responding. And the response now is a partnership between the federal government, state animal health officials, and industry. And uh, Texas A&M has a role in that as well. If you get over onto the natural disaster side, then obviously we have our vet team at the College of Veterinary Medicine, the veterinary emergency response team, and um, uh, AgriLife was, Extension was very heavily involved in hurricane response for animals and supply points and distribution centers. So I'm proud to be part of a system here at Texas A&M where we're still part of the response system, whether it's through training, through solutions and technology, through partnering. Um, we're part of the system that supports agriculture through quick response and strong surveillance systems, and that's our goal now. All right, well, thank you again for coming in today. It was a great interview, and I hope you have a good day. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Ellis, for such a great interview. Our goal here at Beef with Millennials is to provide our listeners with the facts about beef production so that they can make an informed and conscious decision about adding beef to their healthy lifestyles. Keep a lookout for our next episode. We have some great interviews lined up for the coming weeks. To stay up to date with this podcast and our other projects, follow us on Facebook at Ranch TV and on Twitter and Instagram at RanchTVU. Until next time, this has been Beef with Millennials.